on purpose. Uh, there's, two, there's two reasons to that. Um, talk to anybody who walks through church services and, and they hate announcements. It's like, what do you do with them? Where do you put them? Like, you sing about Jesus, and then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, here's five minutes of announcements, right? And so we wanted to intentionally put those at the front of uh, and even before the gathering starts um, so that we can get the announcements out of the way. It's going to be real. But then, two, uh, so that we would get here uh, a little earlier, and that we would anticipate what the Lord is going to do, not primarily, although he moves primarily through his word, but through the gathering of the brothers and sisters and the saints beforehand. Like there is nothing more encouraging to me than the noise out in the hallway to try and get you all to come inside. And, like, and, and, and so I just, I want to encourage us as, uh, and in love as a brother uh, to, to, I mean, this is the best part of my week. To be with you, not to preach. Like, please, don't miss that. My, the best part of my week is to see you guys and to be encouraged with you guys and to see your smiles and to see your tears and to pray with you and to interact with you. And so, man, is it the best part of your week? And so that's why we're, that's why we're doing it. And then this morning, uh, it's gonna, we're, gonna, we're just doing all kinds of things different. Man, uh, this morning we're taking a break from the Beatitudes. And, and we're going to open up to 1 Peter chapter 3. So if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I, I, this past week in our PCC family, we've had a PCC family brother, who's and a dear brother whose mom suddenly passed away last Sunday. Excuse me, she had a brain aneurysm suddenly last Sunday and they just released her from this earthly realm into the heavenly realms last night. Two nights ago, excuse me. That's Sunday morning. Tuesday, I get a call of a dear sister whose brother took his own life. That's Tuesday. Wednesday, I get a call, and a PCC family member's house caught on fire overnight. And that's on top of a global pandemic, and that's on top of all that's going around, and that's on top of all of the other stuff we have to juggle in our life. And I found myself sitting there crying out to God, God, what are you doing, man? You know, like, you don't use, like, uh, formal language with God in those moments. You know what I mean? It's like, come on, brother. It's like, what, God, what are you doing? And if I found myself asking that question, then I can't imagine those of you who are walking in the midst of that, what you're asking. And I wanted to help us as, there's a difference between being a preacher and being a pastor. You know that, right? You can be a great preacher and not be a great pastor. You can be a solid communicator, but you, you miss the pastoring underneath it. And by God's grace, I want to grow in that with you. And you guys have given me so much freedom to be able to do that. And this morning, I am going to do my best in my limited capacity to pastor you through preaching. And so First Peter 
Chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. Let's say 1 Peter. Let's go with 2 Peter. It's in my notes. I just need to read my notes. His divine power has given us everything. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. By these things. Verse 4. By these things. He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness and with goodness with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with endurance and endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we start there, this is our starting point. Peter's going to guide our morning this morning. As we start there, look at verse 3. His divine power has given us everything required for life in godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So our problem, what we experience in this world, is not a lack of resources. It's not because we lack anything from God. Our problem is we lack an awareness of all that we have in Jesus. So it's not a resource problem, it's an identity problem. It's who you're looking for to satisfy you when you have Jesus who fully offers himself to satisfy you. The, look, verse 3, everything required for life and godliness. And, and, and this is what happens. Peter, Peter answers the question of why he says what he says at the end of this passage, or at the end of that, that segment, and look at verse 8. Why is this important for us to understand? For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you do this, if you understand that you have everything you need in Christ, that you need not look anywhere else to anything else to anyone else, if you find all that you're looking for in Christ and Christ alone, it will keep you and you grow in that awareness. It will keep you from being useless and ineffective. But if you begin to look elsewhere for your satisfaction, if you begin to look to this world to give you what only God can give you, if you begin to drift into finding your hope, your life, your peace, your joy, and your acceptance in other lesser things, you will constantly be dissatisfied because when you don't, listen to this, when you don't receive what is given to you vertically, you will find it horizontally. When you, don't, when you don't receive what's been given to you vertically, namely Christ crucified on your behalf, conquering the grave on your behalf to give you the life that you've always longed for, if you don't find that vertically, you will search for it horizontally. And hear me, that will lead to death. Anybody ever try it? Yeah. And so... He, God, through Peter, is telling us, you can't look to this world to give you what only I can give you. You can't. And now back to 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 3. 
And so the problem for us is not a resource problem. The problem for us is an identity problem. It's a, it's a finding our ultimate, it's a glory problem. And so I found myself asking, Lord, what are you doing? What, what is happening? Like, come on, haven't we experienced enough pain, hardship? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, in this, this, hear this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen, amen, and amen. And in light of this, anyone just ever been like to that place of like, God, come on. Like, come on. What are you doing? Like, Second Chronicles 20. Let's go there really quick. Second Chronicles, back in the Old Testament. Chapter 20, this, this text is not just something you read about or memorize or, or uh, pass on by. This, this, this text becomes something that you just grip to. Verse 12 of Second Chronicles chapter 20. Our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. And look. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. We're powerless. I, I have no other hope. I have no other plea. I look to you, God. I look to you to help me. My eyes are on you. I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to pastoring this church. Chad, Ashley, and Lance have no idea what we're doing when it comes to leading this church, but our eyes are on him. And hear me, he cannot and will not ever fail us. Anybody ever just been in that place of having no idea how to love your spouse best? Anybody ever been in this place of pain and depression and grief that are just beyond words? Because I know a few of you who are there right now. Anybody ever come to this place, man, if you have kids, you are released of any kind of control that you ever could have had because you're like, I don't know what to do with this kid. Like, help me parent this kid. I don't know what to do. My, my kid's jumping off slides at recess at preschool, breaking his wrist almost, calling out Michael Jordan as he's doing it. Lord, help me. Anybody ever just been there? Maybe you're there right now. So what is God doing in the world today? Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Of all the words Peter could have used to capture what God is doing in the right here and right now, 
verses 6 and 7. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined or tested by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The three words that Peter uses to tell us what God is doing in the right here and right now present day are grief, trial, and refined, testing. And some of you are like, no, no, not that. Not those words. Give me light and fluffy. Give me something topical that I can just grab onto and walk away with and be encouraged and motivated for the rest of my week. But Peter says, no, what you are going through today, what, what God is doing today, what he's given you today is grief, trial, and re being refined. Because it goes against all that we want, right? So Beatitudes, doesn't, just because we are not in the Beatitudes today doesn't mean we can't bring them up because the Bible unpacks the Bible. The way of Christ to be discipled by Jesus is to go against what the world tells you. It butts up against what the world says is happiness, what the world says is peace. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are what? Poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know their need. Blessed are those who mourn, grieve. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who thirst after hunger and righteousness. Blessed are those who don't look for the, to the world to give them what only Christ can give them. Blessed are you. And so here's Peter saying, the way to life then, it's the way to fully come alive to God is through grief, trial, and refinement. The way to become more like Jesus is not to have everything go the way you planned out five years ago. Why does Peter use these three words? Well, remember, go, let's go right into it. So that the proven character of your faith, verse 7, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire. So Peter gives us a, a word picture here. And some of you are artists and some of you think in, in pictures. And he's, he's, it's called metallurgy. And he's using this, this word picture of metallurgy on purpose. And, and what is metallurgy? Well, it's when uh, you find a metal and he finds the, the metallurgist finds it in an ore state. So track with me here. I'm going to science out and geek out on you for a moment. And the ore is not very useful or attractive in any way because of its imperfections. Those imperfections rob the ore of its strength, rob the ore of its beauty. It would make no sense what, whatsoever to take effort of mining a metal and leaving it in an ore state. It has no value. It has no strength. And it has no beauty. So the metallurgist knows that once the metal has been mined, he needs to add a catalytic agent to it, and then he needs to put it in the white-hot fire. And that... that that heat is liquefying that metal, drawing out its imperfections so that it reaches its highest state of strength and beauty. When you come to Christ, hear this, when you come to Christ, you're an horrific Christian. I didn't, don't take offense. Horrific is not what I said. I said horrific. You're in an or state. You're in an imperfect state. He accepts you where you're at, but he doesn't leave you where you are. 
You're in, you're in an imperfect state in all kinds of imperfections and all kinds of blemishes. And the blood of Christ covers every single one of those so that your ultimate righteousness does not come from your behavior, your life, your way, but from Christ and his way and his way alone. And when we stand at the throne at the end of our life, we will plead not our case. We'll let Jesus plead our case for us. When you come to Christ, you, you are imperfect, but those, those, and those imperfections rob you of your strength. They rob you of your, your diligence and your grit. They rob you of your ability and your beauty and your value. And it would not be, hear this, it would not be love or grace or redemption or covenant keeping of God if you were to keep us in this or state. It's actually his love that takes us out of it. So God in his grace, love, and glory pursues you and me, and he heats us up because he loves us. He loves you way too much to keep you in an horrific state. He wants you to be like his son. He moves you to be like his son. We've been given his son all the resources we need to be like Jesus. And so he heats us up because he loves us way too much not to. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. What is God doing in the world right now? What is God doing in your world right now? He may be heating you up. Romans chapter 5. He may be heating you up and refining you and taking that which is of sin and putting on that which is of Christ and he may be forcing you and putting you in situations that are beyond your own wisdom, strength, and power to reveal that you can't, but he can. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, And not only that, we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope, and this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still helpless and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God, verse 8, proves in his own love for us that in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Praise Jesus. See, what happens is, back to First Peter, just because we're going to put a stake there for a second, we're going to be all over the place. In this, in our suffering, in our pain, any hardship we experience, we give the devil way too much credit. We give the enemy way too much credit. So anytime that we feel a rubbing, anytime that we feel sparks, anytime that we are rubbed up against or we're put in a suffering, painful, hurtful, grieving situation, we say, well, I'm just being attacked by the enemy. And hear me, don't mistake that. Though that is a very real thing, 
Don't give him, don't give the enemy credit where God is actually drawing you, pursuing you, loving you in his own name. To bring you closer to him, the vast majority of difficulties of our life, in our life, is not evil intent, but redemptive love. And we get this wrong a vast majority of the time. Not evil intent, but redemptive love. It doesn't, it doesn't get rid of the pain. It doesn't get rid of the hardship. It doesn't get rid of the mourning and the grief and the hurt you still carry from a thing that happened to you five years ago. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, but it does give it a purpose. Because there is pain, there is purpose in your pain. There is purpose in your suffering, and it's his redemptive love to bring you to himself. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul, Apostle Paul, repeatedly saw that the suffering of the saints was just a normal part of the Christian life. It's a normal feature. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power may be from God. Hear this, look at this. May be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. Verse 12, so then death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul saw suffering as an invitation to get more of Jesus. Paul saw suffering as an invitation to truly live. Because God will take you where you do not want to go in order to produce in you what you never could. Because he loves you. God will take you where you do not want to go to produce in you what you never could on your own, by your own strength, by your own power, because he loves you. Oh, he loves you. Brother and sister, don't be mistaken. Don't give the enemy way too much credit where God is actually redeeming you to be more like Jesus in your pain and your suffering. Please don't. He loves you so much to leave you in an horrific state. So God drives you and he puts you, he knows how sturdy your self-reliance is. He knows how strong your self-will is. He knows how stubborn you can be and how your default mode is to rely on you and your power and your talent and your charm and your skill to get you through this situation. And what he does in his love for you is he reveals this to you. And he drives you in situations that are beyond your power and your wisdom and your strength and your ability to be able to get through it apart from his loving, redemptive grace in your life. You can't do it, brother and sister. You can't. But he can. And so he puts and drives you into these, these situations where it's beyond your self-righteousness. He drives you beyond anything that you, allow to, that you would allow you to look for, for your hope, life, peace, and joy. He drives you to those places where you would actually cry out to help from God on high because he loves you. 
Because God knows that true righteousness only ever begins when you come to the end of yourself and you realize you have none. Matthew 5, back in the Sermon on the Mount. He loves you. He takes you, drives you, and puts you in situations and in some suffering and some fire and some pain, maybe, and so that you would be driven beyond your wisdom, that you would be driven beyond your strength, that you'd be driven beyond your self-righteousness. He reveals that which you are longing for, that thing you've been searching for your entire life, will never actually give you what you are looking for. It actually will give you death. He reveals that to you so that he may reveal himself to you in his son. So you would look to him for your hope and your life and your peace and your joy. Verse 20 of chapter 5 of Matthew. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Why did Jesus say if your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, then you will not enter heaven? Because the righteousness that they had was false. It was fake. It was man-made. It was based on human strength and human wisdom and human achievement. It had nothing to do with God. And only God is righteous. Only God is holy, and only he can give it to you in his son, Jesus. We tend to think that grace, then, that grace is, is this relief and comfort and respite. We tend to think that, that grace is him relieving you and providing a rest for you, and though it is, and though that may be coming, don't despise the grace of refinement. Don't despise the uncomfortable grace that he brings in your life to draw you closer to himself. It's what he's doing in our world today. Don't you see it, brother and sister? He's shaking the entire world alive. We all want the grace of relief. We all want the grace of release. We all want the grace of respite. And in small amounts, we get that. But don't despise the grace of refinement. Philippians 3, and maybe if you find yourself despising the grace of refinement, maybe the right question to ask yourself is, where am I finding my home? Where am I, what is my agenda? What is my, my motive? What is, where am I finding my home? Chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord, man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like, highlight, underline, eagerly await. We eagerly await. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Maybe we get the agenda wrong and we think this world is our destination, but brother and sister, when you've placed your hope in Christ and you've given up on trying to earn your righteousness before God and receive the righteousness through the blood of Christ and Christ alone, we are being prepared for a future destination. 
This world cannot and will not be your home. We are being, we are being prepared like, like warriors and soldiers getting ready to go to war. We are being refined to be strong and valued and have a purpose and have a mission to redeem, to be a part of the ultimate redemption of this world in Jesus Christ. And we want zero credit for it. Don't despise refinement. Don't get the agenda wrong. This world is not our home. On this side of eternity, we are in a war, and we were created to live in this war for the glory of God and his name alone. Because, and listen to this, why we were created for this is because it's the only glory that will ever actually satisfy your longing, sorrowful soul. Like, don't miss that. He loves you way too much to let you find ultimate satisfaction in the spouse that you're sitting right beside, in the child that you're holding, in the job that you have. He loves you way too much. Those things are there to point you to his ultimate glory. They are good and right gifts, but if you put your hope in those things, they will constantly let you down, and actually you'll end up pushing them away. Husbands and wives, your soul is not to be fed by the love of your spouse. The gift of the love of your spouse is meant to be there to point you to the love of Christ. But your soul can't be fed by your spouse's love. It can only be fed by the true bread and the true water that gives eternal life. Boyfriends, girlfriends, students, athletes, artists, all of your work is not what defines you if you are in Christ. Jesus is what defines you, and Jesus is what you're longing for in the affirmation that you look for to other lesser things. So what is God doing? He's doing two things right now, right here in the world today. He's releasing us through our pain, through our suffering, through our refinement. He's releasing us of our reliance on us so that we would rely on him first thing. He's releasing us of our reliance on me. He is releasing me of relying on me to give me what I've always longed for. He is releasing me, and he's releasing you of it through pain and through suffering. And second thing, he's releasing me and us of our reliance on things in this world that will never and can never satisfy. So what God does is he lets those things crumble and he reveals it that maybe letting that job evaporate, maybe that means letting trouble come into a relationship to wake us up to his glory and let go of our heart grasp on creation so our hands would actually reach up to the creator who's given us these good gifts to enjoy in the first place. Maybe that's what he's doing. He's working in us massive, radical, personal heart change. And there's a difference then of being amazed by Jesus and living by faith in Jesus that this is what he's actually doing. There's a difference between being amazed by the things that you would never put your faith in. Like this, I go to an amusement park and I see this awesome roller coaster. And I'm a roller coaster guy, but I'm not like a huge roller coaster guy. Now, I could stand there, and you could stand there, and you can look up, and be like, that's amazing. Look how fast they're going. They're going like six times, upside down. I'm amazed by it. And then, Todd, you come up and say, you want to get on it? I'm like, no way. Why? Because there's a difference between being amazed by something or someone 
in living by faith in that something or someone. You could like Jesus. You could adore Jesus. You could appreciate Jesus and what he brings and what he has to say. But it's not enough to be amazed by the gospel. You must live the gospel by faith. It's not enough to be amazed by Jesus. You must place your entire life in Jesus and live by faith today. Right now, today, who will you serve? This world or Christ? You don't have an in-between option. Will you receive his grace of refinement as a loving, kind, redemptive pursuit of you? Or will you harbor bitterness in your heart because of it? Difficulty is one of his prime tools to use. The dis- difficulty leads us to abandon self-trust. It leads us to abandon feeding ourselves and trusting in lesser things to satisfy. Would you receive this uncomfortable grace this morning? Would we be a people who learn to befriend it and not ask for it, but receive it as God's redemptive pursuing love of his children to make us more like his son? He's zealous for two things. His glory and ours. And as a byproduct of his glory, we get his. Second Corinthians 1 as we end. Chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. Grace to you, so he finishes up, grace to you and peace from our Lord and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank, verse 4, my God for you because of the grace God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech, in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed to you, among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, I love you way too much to not tell you this. There is no true comfort outside the comfort that God brings us in Jesus. There is no true peace outside the peace that God gives us in his son. There is no true life outside the life that God gives us in his son. There's no affliction that's greater than the comfort that God can give you. His comfort is able to come right here, right now, in the middle of this storm, and you can have a peace that's beyond explanation. So I'm going to invite us to take 30 seconds here to confess, to repent, to receive. We're going to watch a story video of this powerful, uncomfortable grace. So 30 seconds amidst the hustle and bustle. Take time to hear from God.
So God, we may not know what to do. We may not know where to go. You're not asking us to control the results. You're asking us to be faithful in the here and now. So here we are, and we're open to being faithful to you. We want nothing more than to look to you. Help us in our need. You're so good, and you're so faithful. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Let's watch this video. God do for us so much. (laughs) Um, We have found a way to invite God into our lives every single day. And through that obedience and through a growing understanding of what marriage and commitment really means, we have figured out how to have a marriage that is 180 degrees different than what we had. Mm -hmm. And it's unbelievable when you put yourself aside and you let God lead what he can do. October 7th, 2011. We were laying in bed, uh, getting ready to go to bed, and uh, Jamie told me she needed to talk. Um, She had been in kind of a, I would say maybe a bit of a foul mood um, that night. Uh, Wasn't sure what was going on. I remember having dinner and wanting to help her clean up the kitchen and the kids were in the living room playing. She was pretty quiet the rest of the night. We go to bed. Um, I'm trying to get out of her. What's going on? What? What's the problem? And finally she just told me, Steve, I'm not happy. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be done. I'm like, what? I mean, that was just, I, I didn't get it. I mean, um, do we have a perfect marriage? No. Um, did I think we had a marriage as good as it's going to be? I mean, just like all our friends. Yeah. I mean, do we argue that? No. Yeah. Every once in a while. Um, but nothing really seemed to be a huge problem, I guess. Um, But we went through that night. We prayed together that night. Um, probably for the first time in our nearly 11 years of marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's just like, why did it take that long? I don't know. Did I think it was going to be the miracle drug? I, I don't know. I, I was at such a loss at that time. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but we did. I mean, that was one week shy of our 11-year um, anniversary um, of marriage number one. I felt like I did not have an identity outside of being Steve's wife, um, 
being the mother of five children and I was lost and did lots of physical activity to try to find happiness. Um, it's like the more I could do, the more I could put on my plate, I thought the better I would feel. And it was not working. <laughs> but it didn't stop me from continuing to fill it. And it was not a moment really where I felt like I could address that with Steve. I could not address that with you because that would make me look weak. And I don't want to be weak. <laughs> um, but it was a long period of time where it was just not happy and just trying to find, um, just trying to find myself in so many things and not understanding why I, I couldn't get there. So fast forward to that night, it was just an accumulation of everything. And I never shared that any of it with Steve. I kept it all right here. So it was quite a, I can only imagine how that conversation came across to him because it was from left field. Um, but in my mind, I was living with it every day. So it, it just, it, it was to the point where it, it boiled up and it boiled over. And there we were. I would say we were separated for just over a year before we, I got the papers for divorce, um, November 24th, 2012. I, I answered the, I answered the door and there was somebody standing there with, to serve me papers. Me to contemplate also because I wanted to tell her, I, this is where you need to go. Like, why? Why can't you see that this is going to be okay? Why can't you see that God wants us together? Why can't you see that we made this bond? We we made a covenant with God. How can we not fulfill that? You know, and I think we were just coming from it from two different angles. You know, like Jamie said, she had that faith, but I think you know a little bit of herself was in the way. A lot of bit of myself <laughs> was in the way. I mean, just so I'm so stubborn. And as as much as he prayed that I would see and understand that, it was almost like I was trying to do all of the exact opposite of all that stuff because it made me so mad that he was so calm. It made me so mad that he was so patient. It made me so mad that he was so confident that God's got this. And it it was all I could do to run away as fast as I could. And it was, it, it's amazing to me to sit here and think about that and look at that because he was just being faithful <laughs> and I was just being a brat. <laughs> God promised me that I would be okay. God promised me that our family would be okay, that Jamie, the woman leaving me, would be okay. 
and I was good with that. Um, Psalm 139, every morning, I read that. I memorized it. I start every morning, I could get up and I would walk around what was our bedroom and I could recite that entire chapter. It's like, what was it? Cling to it. What did you cling to? Well, the, the, the main body in there is that he knew me before I was born. That every day of my life was written in his book before even one of them came to be. How can you not be okay with that? He knew every struggle that we were going to have. He knew every rocky road that he was going to carry us through because it's just so hard. It's hard to understand until you've actually been there, I think. Um, so many things, so many things came out to me that I learned as a kid. I mean, right. I went to church since I was a baby all the way through and um, the peace that passes all understanding is just a phrase until you live it. Until that was a real point for me. Um, I still wasn't given up. Uh, one thing that the Christian counselor I went to told me, he said, she is still your wife. You do not have to give up on her. You don't, even if you get divorced, you don't have to give up on trying to get her back until she marries someone else. And that basically <laughs> would sum up why I married someone else. I mean, truly, I mean, and that lasted for about six months, and then that marriage went. <clears throat> and it's a harsh reality when I looked in the mirror and I said, you are now divorced twice, and the only common denominator in both of those divorces is you. It's not Steve's fault. It's not your second husband's fault. It's you. Like, what are you doing? And that was about the point at which the scales came off and my eyes opened, and I'm like, stop being so selfish. What are you doing? You're not even letting God, who is such a huge part of your life, take control. And at that point, I did. And it was, a, I want to say, a long road, but not really, I mean, of us reconciling. But it was a lot of humility. So much humility. and But it was so worth it. When my second marriage um, started to get really bad, the first person I came to talk to was Steve. Um, and it's amazing that he listened, <laughs> but he did. And I think a lot of that was him being humble and me being humble and God standing above us. Um, and I think that led to me being very honest with him and me being able just to talk to him um, 
talk to him about things I never talked to him before about because I felt like our relationship had gotten to a point where he was my friend and not my husband who I was going to disappoint if I felt something he didn't feel. I always wanted to make sure that I, I was um, not, I did I didn't want to be a disappointment to him and I didn't want to be weak in his eyes. And when we were divorced and then I was remarried and then that marriage failed, I could be finally be real with him. And he saw like my lowest of lows. I mean, we've been together for a very long time. I mean, we started dating when I was in high school. So you think that somebody knows you if you're together that long. There are so many things that you can keep from the other person. And I did that because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be weak in front of him. And I think it finally gave us the opportunity where I felt comfortable enough to be honest with him and have conversations with him about how weak I was feeling or how I needed, I, I need help. I needed help. And I, it was a lot of me sitting in our living room as your friend, divorced twice, and I'm bawling. And how did I get here? How long, how long passed by? I'm going to say from the time that I left Steve until, um, thank you, until we got married. The second time? Yeah. Seven years? Six years? Six years. Six years. Just just shy of six years is um, March of 2017 we got remarried. I think one thing that we realized too, through that honesty and through the ability to talk to each other is <clears throat> we started out as friends in high school. Mm-hmm. And we were friends. And then we started dating, and then we get married, and now we're husband and wife. We're, we're not friends anymore. She's my wife, I'm her husband. And then we go through everything. Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Now we're friends again. And we're really good friends. Mm-hmm. And now I can say we're husband and wife and best friends. Right. You know? There, there isn't that separation anymore. I mean, I tell her all the time, she tells me like, I'm so thankful that you're my best friend. And that's where, that's where it really comes. I think part of that, honestly, and part of that ability to talk to each other so much more freely now is that one, she's my wife through God. And two, we're best friends. And we have such a better understanding now of what God has in store for us. And we have a purpose as a married couple now. Before, we didn't have a purpose. Our purpose was we were married and we had kids and we go to work and, I mean, it's just life. And now we have a purpose. What is that? Our purpose is to 
use what God has given us. Our second marriage to show others what can be done through his grace and through his power because it really had nothing to do with us it's not about us at all it was none of this could be possible without him god is the ultimate father in this and that he will bring you where you need to be i want you to understand that He knows where you are, and He knows where you're going to be, even if you don't. I want you to know that He cares for you, and that you will be okay. Know that it doesn't always have to be the end. It doesn't have to be over. If you're struggling because you're feeling so unhappy and so lost, and don't know maybe where your identity is coming from and you're just pursuing and you're running and you're filling your plate with so many things and you feel like you have the answers even if you're feeling like you're being obedient with your faith and you're praying if you could really step aside and let God sit in the driver's seat. Let him take control just for a little bit so you can see what it is that you're doing and where you're going and be honest with yourself and have a little humility and get out of your own way and let God speak to you and pour his grace on you so that your eyes will open and you will see that it's not about you. It's about Jesus and allow him to talk to you. Your eyes can open and you can understand and realize that you don't need to give up. You don't need to run away you can withstand and you're not going to be able to do it on your own you've got to be willing to ask for help and Jesus is waiting with his arms open for you just got to do it <laughs>